From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. 18 miles of I-85 could be an on-ramp to the future. The Ray C. Anderson Memorial Highway, or the Ray, stretches from West Point to LaGrange, Georgia. It is now a proving ground for technologies that make infrastructure more ecologically sustainable. Ideas modeled by its namesake, carpet manufacturer who was once called the greenest CEO. So how would it work? Well, Allie Kelly is overseeing several related projects as executive director of the Ray. Allie, welcome. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for being here. What does sustainable highway mean? That was the exact question that we had about four years ago when we started this journey on the Ray. Um, We worked with Georgia Tech at the very beginning to try to understand how we might be able to transform an 18-mile stretch of highway Uh, into a a place, into a status that better reflected the life and the legacy of Ray Anderson. What we quickly found is that our stretch of interstate is just like every other mile of interstate in the United States. And that's how we have um, decided to work with the Ray C. Anderson Foundation, with Georgia DOT, with partners at the Federal Highway Administration and USDOT, and with partners in the private sector and advanced technology firms and and companies that have a stake in transportation to use this 18-mile stretch as a demonstration area to transform every mile of interstate across the country and around the world. There are so many players and so much involved when doing something with the highway. Then, as you said, Georgia, the GDOT is in charge of state and federal roadways. So how did your organization get control, I guess, of this stretch? Oh, I don't think we have control. We work in a partnership. It's an expansion of the P3, the public-private partnership. We've added philanthropy, so we've created the P4 uh, public-private philanthropic partnership. And using our resources, using our expertise and the expertise of our partners, um, we combine those resources with Georgia DOT and with the federal government to make these demonstrations happen. Um, we're one of only two areas in the United States where active roadway is being used to um, demonstrate and to um, test technology that's ready for prime time, that's ready for an open and public environment. And our hope is that as the technology performs and as it succeeds, that we can help to scale it to other states and to other parts of the country. Well, so let's look at that technology a little bit. Among the initiatives converting this section of the highway into a solar highway. So what does that mean? Sure. Well, the the mission and the goals of the Ray revolve around um, uh, saving lives, um, decarbonizing transportation, and taking the waste in the transportation sector and creating more productivity, um, uh, turning liabilities into assets. And there's a lot of transportation uh, infrastructure and assets that we've already invested in that are already built and functioning, but they're only functioning with one purpose. They're single use. And really, we live in a multitasking world. And so the question is, you know, these pieces of infrastructure, could they do more than one thing? Mm-hmm. More um, than just provide transportation from right. one place to the next. Right. So the travel lane itself, um, on the interstate system, we clear 40 feet or more on either side. Mm-hmm. And that means that the travel lane is completely exposed to sunlight unless it's shaded by an immediately passing car or truck. So what we did is in 2016, we worked with a French company called Wattway to install a 50 square meter test section of solar pavement 
Um, we didn't have to change anything about the existing road. Um, the solar pavement actually adheres to the existing road, so you don't have to throw away any of your existing infrastructure. It just um, actually unlocks new potential and unlocks new performance out of an existing asset. In the first 12 months, ours was the highest producing test section of solar road in the entire world. We produced enough power in 12 months to power the average American house. And so then the question becomes, who would like their driveway to power their house? <laughs> Sounds like a good deal to me. So of all the things needing attention to make the planet sustainable enough for generations to live on, why highways? Well, why highways? Because the governor, Governor Deal, worked with Ray Anderson's youngest daughter, Harriet Anderson Langford, in 2011 to um, designate a stretch of highway that we now are able to use as a proving ground. But also why highways? Because transportation is going through um, immense disruption. We've we've seen this before. You know, at the start of the of the 20th century, we went from the horse and buggy to the motor car. And then in the 1950s, we went from the motor car to the American two-car family, which was gas-powered. And now we're moving into electric an electrified transportation environment that's smart, becoming smarter, and that will, in short order, drive itself, you know, self-driving autonomous electric vehicles. And we have to figure out how the infrastructure is going to not only accommodate advanced mobility, cars that are electric and cars that are autonomous, self-driving, but also how can our infrastructure be improved and how can the infrastructure become smart so that we can leverage the highest benefits out of advanced mobility. And what I mean by leveraging the highest benefits that might be congestion mitigation or efficiencies in freight, it might be saving human lives, which we need desperately because nearly 40,000 Americans are dying on our roads every year. And also, we need desperately to decarbonize transportation in the United States. It's the largest contributing sector to um, carbon emissions. And those are our opportunities to match smart infrastructure with advanced mobility as these um, advanced vehicles are introduced into our fleet. I'm speaking with Allie Kelly. She's executive director of the Ray. It's an 18-mile stretch of I-85 from LaGrange to West Point, Georgia, and it's become a testing ground for sustainable highway technologies. Are you, Allie, you mentioned working with a French company, for the most part, working with existing technologies, or actually is the Ray developing its own? The Ray is actually developing its own technology as well. Um, it's a road dot that would replace the existing reflector dots on the road. Mm -hmm. um, the road dot that we're developing is LED lit, uh, capable of communicating via color through amber lights or white lights or red lights. Um, it's a smart device, so it gives the road a voice and allows the road to know itself and communicate out what its status is, which could be really important in terms of understanding how weather is affecting driving conditions or if there's an accident up ahead trying to get approaching motorists to slow down or uh, maybe warning you that you're approaching a work site so that you could be um, more aware of you're driving and more aware of your surroundings. So we're working on our own technology as a philanthropy, um, but we also are constantly looking for new companies and new technologies to work with. Um, you know, they have to meet the criteria of the Georgia DOT and the Ray, which are to save lives, to increase efficiency, to mitigate congestion, and to reduce carbon. 
Um, so those are the mission um, and the criteria that you have to meet. And it has to be something that's going to be safe in its operation. It cannot disturb the operation of the existing system because we're not on a private test track. We're not tucked away in someone's mm-hmm. backyard. We're on a high-speed interstate, <laughs> 70 miles per hour mixed fleet with heavy 18-wheelers as well as you know four-door sedans that are carrying um, families from vacation to work or whatever. So, so if, if somebody is driving along, does it look different? Would drivers actually know I'm on the ray? This is all. This is all new. Yeah, it's becoming um, more and more visible with every year. This year, Georgia Power will be working with the Ray, Georgia DOT, and the Feds um, and other partners to build a megawatt of solar off to the shoulder of the interstate. So 40 feet from the edge of the interstate pavement, you will find 2,600 solar panels with native wildflowers growing underneath them. Um, We'll be the third state in the country to uh, pilot the utilization of government-owned right-of-way for the production of clean, renewable energy. Um, We'll start with solar energy this year, and then our hope is that we can also demonstrate how wind energy might be uh, developed and generated on the in the transportation sector using transportation wind. Mm-hmm. So the the force of the, you mean the force of the car the wind well, the force of eighteen wheelers going under bridge overpasses where the wind energy is really pinched is an opportunity for us here in Georgia where otherwise our wind resources are not that great. Huh. Highways are usually eyesores, so the idea <laughs> of you you you're talking about actually transforming the land around them, planting wild grasses and flowers. We, we have. We actually have the only pilot on the interstate right-of-way of, way of um, a, a new cultivar of wheat developed by the Land Institute. It's a perennial wheat called Kernza. And one of the great things about Kernza is that it grows 9 to 10-foot root systems that bury atmospheric carbon deep into the soil <sighs> underneath the topsoil where it could be re-released. Um, this plant actually buries it 9 feet, 10 feet below. And our thought is that if this plant is able to survive in the southeast on the right-of-way where the soil is pretty polluted and degraded, that we might be able to work with Georgia DOT and the Federal Highway Administration and farmers to think about, you know, possibly harvesting the wheat for a sustainable fiber product that a company like Kimberly-Clark could use in making toilet tissue or baby diapers. You've really thought a lot of this stuff. Every, every, everything has multiple purposes because it... Um, you know, we have a lot of opportunity with technology and innovation to make our transportation sector work a little harder and produce better results for us. Um, another really easy thing that we could be doing across the state and across the country is the utilization of scrap tires into the pavement. And we will have a test section of rubberized asphalt, which is scrap tires. Which you can't do anything with, really. Directly into the pavement. Wow. It produces a really uh, superior paving surface that's quieter, that's safer. It handles water differently. Um, It also has nearly double the lifespan, so you can get twice of the life out of your infrastructure with each paving. I think it's really going to produce some amazing results for the Ray that will open other people's eyes as to how we can find sustainable end markets for what is otherwise a, a really dangerous waste product like scrap tires. So what is the cost per mile compared to a standard highway? Have you worked that out yet? Um, we have been working with groups from Duquesne University to try to understand um, the cost benefit 
uh, analysis um, of investing in these technologies and the um, and the benefits that it produces, whether it's clean energy or a longer lifespan or um, safer roads. And that all of that information can be found on our website, which is www.theray.org. Um, you know, the, the problem that we have, and I think that we're going to have to confront in short order, is that everything that we do in transportation, by and large, is based on low bid on day one. Mm-hmm. And the analysis really needs to become more of a life cycle that can take into account the benefits of investing in smarter infrastructure five years, 10 years, 15 years later. So that's a conversation that um, the federal government is involved in and our state government. We hope we can be a driver in that conversation, no pun intended. (laughs) Have you looked to expand (laughs) to other communities beyond this stretch from the grain? We do. We have um, an existing three-year partnership with the Colorado DOT's RODEX program. And also here in Georgia, strategic partnership between the Ray and Peachtree Corners in Gwinnett County. So this is something I might think of, you know, happening in California or Massachusetts. I mean, are people surprised when you're working on this in Georgia? People are excited that a, that philanthropy can be leveraged in a P4 to build infrastructure, especially when we've had gridlock nationally in focusing on infrastructure. We have infrastructure week every year, but we don't have an infrastructure bill or an infrastructure funding plan yet. Um, philanthropy can come to the table and we can build we can build infrastructure and we can make transportation safer and smarter. And this is probably a plan for the future because, you know, right now our transportation and infrastructure is largely funded by the gas tax. And as we move into electrified mobility, we're going to have to find other ways to partner to fund smarter infrastructure. Allie Kelly is executive director of The Ray, a nonprofit and an 18-mile stretch of I-85 from LaGrange to West Point, Georgia. The Ray's goal is to make that roadway the world's first sustainable highway. Coming up, the lack of affordable housing is a hot topic in Georgia. So GPB's Ross Terrell asked Housing and Urban Development Secretary Ben Carson about it. Hear his answers as On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The median home price in Georgia is on track to nearly double from 2012 prices in the coming years, and wages have not kept up. And Georgia cities can be especially expensive. Atlanta rents have spiked in the past decade. At the same time, the number of units classified as affordable has been dropping. GBB's Ross Terrell recently discussed housing costs with U.S. Housing and Urban Development Secretary Ben Carson. Carson was in Atlanta for a conference on emerging strategies to affordable housing. And during their one-on-one conversation, Secretary Carson acknowledged the problem and emphasized the country's ability to innovate solutions. Well, first of all, we have to recognize that we do have a shortage of affordable housing, and it's reached a crisis stage. Uh, But also recognize that Americans tend to be very innovative uh, and very entrepreneurial. So what we really want to talk about are those things uh, that are emerging uh, that can solve this problem. 
Carson acknowledged the role that gentrification plays in depleting the supply of affordable housing, but proposed that offering people more choices can negate its effects. That means uh, not only in terms of the housing that we develop, but it also means the people we take care of through vouchers. We need to make sure that the voucher system uh, is not onerous. So, you know, if a landlord can take a person who's on a voucher versus one without a voucher, which, who are they going to take? They're going to take the one without the voucher because they don't have all of this paperwork and inspections and stuff. Uh, we're working on that very hard. We have a national task force making very good progress on that, too. That response reinforces one of Carson's main points since assuming the position of HUD secretary. There's just too much regulation. Though Carson said all phases of government, federal, state, and local, need to be engaged in the challenge of affordable housing, he says regulatory barriers stand in the way of making actual progress. Most of the legislative bodies, the city councils, uh, the mayors, uh, are willing to look at some of these uh, archaic regulations. And in many cases, uh, you know, one regulation was put in place that was supposed to replace another one, but instead of replacing it, it's just layered on top of it. So you have multiple layers of regulation, which makes the distance between point A and point B much greater because it becomes a labyrinth instead of a straight line. And then there's the funding. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms has called for a billion dollars in public and private investment as part of her affordable housing plan. And Georgia recently received a $1 million grant from HUD's Veterans Affairs Supportive Housing Program. Ross Terrell asked Secretary Carson to respond to people who look at that grant and think it's just not that much money. Do recognize that with veterans homelessness, uh, since 2010, that number has dropped by half. Just last year, it dropped by 5.4%. And uh, a lot of it has to do with the uh, partnership between HUD and the VA. HUD providing the housing, the VA providing the wraparound services. Uh, but that coupled with, uh, with some of the public-private partnerships uh, has expanded around the country. Uh, 73 communities have declared a virtual end to veterans homelessness. Uh, three states and a fourth state will soon be doing the same thing. The latest numbers released last year from the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness showed that there were 705 homeless veterans living in Georgia, which accounted for 7% of the total homeless population. But the conversation with Carson also hit on other issues, like recent tweets from President Trump telling four congresswomen to go back to where they came from, tweets that led to divided opinions over whether or not they were racist. The HUD secretary defended the president, said he understood where Trump was coming from. As if someone comes into uh, your dwelling and they say, you know, I don't like your carpet. I don't like the paint on your wall. I don't like the way your house smells. I don't like your food. You might be tempted to say to them, there's the door. And maybe more tempted to say that if they say, and I want you to change all this stuff so that, so that to my liking. That's a frustration that many Americans feel, you know, particularly uh, you know, the people that you're talking about, some of the more radical uh, elements that want to abolish ICE, you know, they demonize our Border Patrol people, uh, the police. You know, when you think about this stuff, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Secretary Carson said people could fix the issues facing the country if they work together. And the same goes for affordable housing. He cited the example of a formerly low-income development in Miami that was redeveloped for all incomes and offered people originally living there first choice. He said more initiatives like that are key to solving the nation's affordable housing crisis. 
You can hear the full conversation between HUD Secretary Ben Carson and GPB's Ross Terrell. Just go to gpbnews.org. I have been a judge at three of the semi-annual singer-songwriter shootouts at Eddie's Attic in Decatur, Georgia. For full disclosure, my partner hosts the weekly open mic contests at the Attic. Beyond supporting him, though, it is an honor to witness the parade of fierce, mostly young, mostly tattooed musicians plugging in their guitars and bearing their souls. And it is gut-wrenching to winnow that field down to just one winner. At the 48th shootout, then 10-year-old Ansley Oakley stepped up to the mic, all four feet, eight inches of her, in a vintage maxi dress, and started to sing. Would you stay with me? Could you take my hand? All six judges looked at each other gobsmacked to hear such an assured voice, eerily reminiscent of country music queen's past, coming out of this young girl. When I'm in your arms, I'm nothing but me. Anzi was one of the top three finalists that night, but we were so impressed that last summer we invited her to come and play at Grocery on Home. That's an occasional bring-your-own-everything listening room we run out of the old grocery store where we live in Grant Park. Ansley lives with her parents, Mike Plummer and Amanda Averill in Atlanta, and her younger brother. And I spoke with her in between songs about getting her start in music. I was at the age of eight, and her mom surprised her by bringing her to a Nikki Lane show at State Capitol Theater in Macon. Here's Ansley. So I was there standing in front of the stage, singing all the lyrics to all her songs. And she just stopped in the middle of the song and said, Ansley, do you want to come up? And I said, yes. I would love to come up. And I went up. And what'd you sing? Uh, wild One. So did you know all the words to all her songs? Yes, pretty much. So what did it feel like when you got up on stage? Um, felt pretty good. Yeah, you weren't scared? No. Well, yes. <laughs> kind of scared. But it felt natural to be on stage? Yes, it did. Is that why you started playing guitar? Because you yep. hadn't played guitar before that, right? Yeah, that's exactly why. So what did it feel like when you picked up the guitar and started playing? Well, I just felt kind of free. And I knew then that I was going to be a guitar player and songwriter. But before that, I didn't know what I was going to be. I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do. Until I picked up a guitar and I started playing. That's when I knew. Not a lot of people know what they're going to do at eight. Yeah. I guess I just did. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. So when did you start writing songs? Did you start immediately? Um, I just started coming up with, what are they called? Like ideas, chords, chords, lyrics, melodies, whatever y'all want to call them. I call them melodies. Um, We're going to call them what you call them, I think. Yeah. That's okay. good. That's, that's good. What was the first song? Do you remember what um, was the first song you wrote? Yes. It's called When I Die. And when I Die? Yes. 
But don't worry, it's not about me. It's about other people, except me. Um, it's about my great-grandma and um, great-grandpa that passed away a couple years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. It's fine. It's totally fine. Then you stream these stories sometimes. Bible ways made me feel warm inside. Always with me in my heart. I feel sad because we're apart. When I die, when I go, it'll feel really strange feeling in my bones. When I die, when I go, wanna lay in the sand with a heart full of gold. Where do your ideas come from for your songs? I can't really say. They just kind of come. It's like what I call them. I have a um, songwriter coach. Her name's Kelly McRae, if you ever want to look her up. And um, she calls them song seeds. And song seeds? Song seeds. And they just start growing in my head, and then they get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it finally turns into a song. That's where it kind of comes from, really. And then I just kind of I think about who I've lost and the loved ones that I've had, and I just kind of come up with them. Pretty much. You're homeschooled, right? Yes. So is there a time when you think, okay, I'm going to sit down and write a song, or do you just wake up in the morning or have some kind of thought and it becomes a song? Seed? I, I just, song seed, yes. <laughs> and yes, I just wake up in the morning, I just start playing my guitar, and then it kind of just comes to me. It's kind of, yeah. So who do you like to listen to for music besides Nikki? Um, so I like to listen to oldies, so like, Loretta Lynn, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, yeah. And then the newers are um, Chris Stapleton, of course. <sighs> um, Courtney Marie Andrews, um, Kelly McRae. So you're not into, like, Taylor Swift and Cardi B? Um, I don't really care for them. I like... Ansley Oakley is the name given to her by Nikki Lane. Her parents, Amanda and Mike, are both music lovers and own the Southbound Restaurant in Atlanta. They sat close by while she spoke with me, and I asked her what they listen to. Um, so my dad is a dead head. He loves Grateful Dead. He loves the Grateful Dead. And my mom likes Bob Dylan, Lucinda Williams, all those folks. Folks. <laughs> so you grew up listening to that kind of yes. music, right? And I'm very thankful for that. I was born in the Rockies. On my eight day, I traveled home. I don't know where it will take me. I just know. You've also been on stage with Nikki in other places too, right? Um, yeah. What's the biggest show you ever did with her? With her? In Vegas. <laughs> At the MGM Grand opening up for Chris Stapleton. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. 
this is a pretty um pretty impressive career at ten. Yeah, sure, sure is, sure is, sure is, sure is. What do you want to do when you grow up? Um, well, I mean, grow up to like twelve and fourteen and stuff. Ha <laughs> I want to do what I do now. I want to be a songwriter. I want to be a musician. Hopefully, I can learn other. Um, that's pretty. Mu- <laughs> that's pretty much all I want to um, do right now. Ansley sounds far more confident when she talks about her songs than the life that seeded them. I asked her about the inspiration for the song "My Days." Um, it's about a little girl who has to be taken away from her family. And if my birth mom did not make the choice that she did, I would have been in that situation. Um, I'm adopted, apparently. I love being adopted, and I love my parents. I love them. I I love them. (sighs) I love them. But if I didn't be adopted, then I would have been in a foster home right now. So I'm happy that I'm adopted. I'm happy that I'm in here right now talking to y'all. Early one morning Just before the sun I heard a knock on the door And yelling begun I looked down the window John Mayer, Jennifer Nettles from Sugarland, and Tyler Childers have all been previous shootout winners at Eddie's Attic. The list of people like Ansley who haven't won yet may have an even more impressive future in music. Stranger walked in my room, took me by the You can find Ansley Oakley's songs on iTunes and Spotify. And it's definitely worth having a look at her sing. She's on Instagram at Ansley Oakley. That's A-N-S-L-E-Y-O-A-K-L-E-Y. They say I'm just a kid with no place to go. Mom, if you
We're back with On Second Thought from GBB. I'm Virginia Prescott. A new entity called Warner Media now owns CNN. It's the result of a recent merger between AT&T and Time Warner. CNN founder Ted Turner sold his company to Time Warner back in 1996. His involvement in operations has faded over the years, but GBB's Ricky Bevington reports he still has a role in the CNN Fellowship. 39 years ago this June, the world's first 24-hour all-news television channel launched in Atlanta. From the start, CNN's audience was global. Founder Ted Turner banned expressions like foreign. Turner relinquished influence over CNN decades ago when he sold it to Time Warner in 1996. But there's one CNN program to which he maintains close ties. When Ted Turner debuted CNN on June 1st, 1980, Ronald Reagan was running for president. Funky Town was topping pop music charts. And Oprah Winfrey was five years away from becoming a household name. Americans were getting news about the president, celebrities, and important events, primarily from newspapers and magazines. Enter the world's first 24-hour all-news television channel. Ted Turner's revolutionary cable news network based in Atlanta. Good evening, I'm David Walker. And I'm Lois Hart. Now here's the news. Over a recent lunch at downtown Atlanta's Ted's Montana Grill, CNN's chief of protocol affairs, Sonia Tucker, described just how hard it was for Turner's modestly staffed Atlanta newsroom to deliver around-the-clock news to televisions around the globe. Remember, at that time, CNN didn't have enough content for 24-hour news. That's why he pioneered the show World Report. World Report was a repository for television stories produced by journalists in their home countries. Welcome to CNN World Report, a forum for international broadcasters to report the news as they see it. I'm Reporters telling stories about War zones, religious festivals, famines, and sports competitions could mail videotapes to Turner's Atlanta headquarters. And he allowed journalists to send stories unedited, and we would put it, program it, on a show called World Report and air it on CNN and International. For people thousands of miles away watching CNN World Report, the world got a little bit smaller. Today, CNN's partnership with international journalists is more formal than collecting mailbags of videotapes. Since 1989, it's run an educational program now known as the CNN Fellowship. Each year, five cohorts of international reporters, editors, and media executives travel to Atlanta. They spend two weeks immersed in CNN's operations and newsrooms. Upstairs from the restaurant, 80-year-old Ted Turner is about to mark 30 years of the CNN Fellowship program. Here, we're going to go over here. Turner's assistant leads us into a lobby where eight international fellows are gathered. They are from Bosnia, Barbados, Czech Republic, Germany, Italy, Jamaica, and Vietnam. And this is the point at which Turner's assistant asked us to turn our audio recorders off. His meetings with fellows have always been off the record, so you're not going to hear Ted Turner during this story. Turner has Lewy body dementia. It causes a progressive decline in mental abilities. I was impressed with his mental sharpness and conviction. As he answered fellows' questions, Turner kept returning to the motivating belief on which he founded CNN. Give people information and they will use it to make the world a better place. Ted Turner is a legend. 
Giacomo Segantini is foreign desk editor with TG Uno in Italy. He was struck by Turner's brand of unvarnished truth-telling. He just said, you know, do your best, find the truth, tell the truth, that's it. You just need to do what your job is supposed to, is to be. Finding the truth resonated with Tatiana Sekulic, who was a child during the Bosnian War in the 1990s. She grew up watching CNN report on the war she was living through. Today, she's multimedia executive producer for N1 TV in Bosnia-Herzegovina. For us in Bosnia-Herzegovina, CNN during the war was our window to the world. Sekulic is a living example of World Report's mission from decades ago. Enable television viewers to peer deeply into any country on Earth, including their own. Barbados CNN actually covers the world for us. Mark Seal is head of sports and news at Caribbean Broadcasting Corporation. We do not have the resources to have our reporters or any crews anywhere else except for Barbados or the Caribbean region. But when it comes to political coverage, Milton Walker, head of news at TV Jamaica, says he understands critics who claim CNN wades into opinion journalism. I'm still off the, the straight list guy that give me the news and let me make my own opinion or form my own impressions of the particular issue. It's impossible to know what CNN would be with Ted Turner still at the helm. He remains dedicated to championing journalists and journalism through the CNN Fellowship. For GPB News, I'm Ricky Bevington. You can see photos and videos from Ricky's story at gpbnews.org. Tom Johnson served as CNN president in the 90s when Ted Turner still owned the company. A few years ago, Johnson spoke with GPB's Bill Nygut about that experience, and Bill asked Johnson about meeting Ted Turner. Johnson had just lost his job as publisher of the Los Angeles Times. By 1990, you're back out there looking for a, a, I, a I am, job. And I am, and I, and I uh, somebody told me that Warren Buffett said, well, there just aren't many Pope jobs around, <laughs> that Tom was in a Pope job. And then out of the blue, I get this call uh, from Ted Turner who says, uh, would, you, would you really become president of CNN? That was his quote. Would you really become president of CNN? I said, well, Ted, uh, you know, you don't know me very well, and I don't know you very well. And he said, well, by, by when can you make up your mind? And I said, well, Ted, I really do need to find out more about you, and you need to know a whole lot more about me. And so he ran some due diligence on me. I, try, I talked to Roberto Gosweta here in Atlanta. I talked to Jane Fonda. Jane said to me, Tom, he's the most remarkable man I've ever known. They were dating at that they point. They were dating. They were dating. He's the most remarkable man I've ever known. I, t- I, t- I talked to, but I also, I talked to Walter Cronkite. I talked to Bill Moyers. And, I, and I, it, it was just, it was amazing. Some people said, Tom, you are sort of a traditional kind of guy. Ted's very unconditional. Not sure to work. But the more I got to know Ted, I said, this is, in his own way, this is another 
This is another Otis Chandler. This guy really, really believes it. You have been quoted as saying, Ted is the only genius I've ever met, and I've only used that word to describe one person in my lifetime, and that is Ted Turner. It's just so. Ted has this extra lobe out of which comes these original thoughts, and you go on from there. But clearly, he made that kind of profound impact. And he is. We have a genius still living among us, and he is the uh, the most complex genius probably that we will ever know. So you pack your bags, you and Ed Winnick come back to Georgia, you're in Atlanta, and I think maybe a day or two days after you get here on August 2nd, 1990, this happens. On the morning of August 2nd, thousands of people in Kuwait City woke up to war. Stay away from the window. I was joking. I was part of the building. By mid-morning, thousands of troops had swarmed into the capital. That's where a man Well, uh, on day two, Saddam Hussein invades Kuwait. More than anything, there was Ted. Uh, And and I said, Ted, you know, uh, George Bush has said that this will not stand. And I said, he's deployed his former Secretary of State, James Baker, to meet with Tariq Aziz to negotiate. But if if they don't work out Saddam coming out of there, there's going to be war. And I said, you told me when you hired me, I said, Ted, what is it that you expect of me? And he said, I expect for it, meaning CNN, to become the best news network on the planet. I said, what else? He said, that's it, pal. I want CNN to become the best news network on the planet. I said, now, if we're going to become the best, I need to lease uh, space on transponders. I need to put in place portable uplinks, uh, ground stations. All of I this need, in Iraq. And, and I said, well, Iraq and Israel, oh, okay. Saudi desert, oh, all, right. all over the region. Gotcha. And I gotcha. said, Ted, how much am I authorized to spend? And I said, it could range from maybe... $8 million over budget to as much as $35 million over budget. Here were his exact words, exact words. He said, you spend whatever you think it takes, pal. That was it. That's an excerpt of a conversation with GBB's Bill Nygut and former CNN president Tom Johnson. You can hear the whole thing at gbbnews.org. Music has a particular power to transport us to another place or time. One Atlanta band set out to harness the soft rock vibes of the 70s and 80s to pay tribute to the greats and ended up earning a following all of their own. Yacht Rock Review has taken the term tribute band to a whole new level. Their ninth annual Yacht Rock Revival will be held on August 24th at Chastain Park. Singer Nick Nespajani joined us to add a couple of songs to our Georgia playlist. That's our tribute to songs written and performed by Georgians. Hi, my name is Nick Nespajani, and I'm the singer for Yacht Rock Review. in my direction I caught it in my hands today I find 
first song I chose for the Georgia playlist was Moonlight Feels Right by Starbuck. Starbuck is Atlanta's most legitimate yacht rock artist. They were on the Midnight Special in the late 70s when they had their huge hit with Moonlight Feels Right. And uh, about six months after they appeared on the Midnight Special, they broke up, never to play together again until 2011 when we had our first yacht rock revival and had one of the Starbuck guys as a guest. The singer showed up and said, Hey, Starbuck is my band. Came on stage, did the song with us without rehearsal. And that spurred a full-on Starbuck reunion. So we were responsible with our first Yacht Rock revival for the reunification of Starbuck. Feels right. I think the song has a great hook written by Bruce Blackman, and uh, it has the world's most famous marimba solo in the middle of it, performed by Bo Wagner. Yeah, the marimba solo is incredible, not only because it's very catchy, but like the chops in it, the, the speed that he plays is is unparalleled in popular music. You see the sun come up on Sunday morning And watch it fade the moon away I guess you know I'm giving you a warning Cause me and moon are itching to play I'll take you on a trip beside the ocean And drop the top of Chesapeake I also want to add Eyes Be Closed by Washed Out to the Georgia playlist. This album was important in the chill wave movement of the early 2010s. And uh, it was produced by Ben H. Allen, who also produced the record that we have coming out uh, in early 2020. Uh, he's been a longtime friend, big producer on the Atlanta scene. He's done records for Kaiser Chiefs and Animal Collective and worked with CeeLo and Puff Daddy. Um, and our drummer, Mark, uh, actually plays the Rototom fills on, uh, on this song, Eyes Be Closed. I think it's super smooth. It's kind of like modern yachty to me. I would say yacht rock is more of a mood than really a sound. Like anything that you would put on if you were Ted Turner on your yacht, you know, about to win the America's Cup in 1980, wearing short shorts and having an awesome mustache. Like 
if you can picture Ted Turner listening to the song, then it's Yacht Rock. You know, I chose songs, one from the 70s and one that's fairly modern, that both have Yacht Rock qualities, and I think uh, that Yacht Rock is a mood that will will extend forever. So I I hope that by including these two songs, uh, some of that Yachty vibe gets onto this Georgia playlist. That's Nick Nespajani, singer for the Yacht Rock Review. The ninth annual Yacht Rock Revival is in Chastain Park on August 24th. You can find more information at gbbnews.org. You can join the conversation with questions or comments. Call us at 404-500-9457. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at OST Talk. You can email us at onsecondthought at gpb.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar, and Amy Kiley is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott, Soft Rock On with On Second Thought. <laughs>